You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Murphy Randall, a programmer at day one who has, in his career, gotten paid to use seven different compiled JavaScript languages. We talk about not only his experiences with these languages, but also how the experience of using so many different languages has changed his perspective on how to choose technologies in general. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, the Compile to JS Smorgasbord. Okay, Murphy, thank you so much for joining me. Richard, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. So you're somebody who's done more than anyone I know. I think uh, you've got production experience with more like different compile to JavaScript languages than like than anyone I know. Like and and not just like hobby projects. We're talking like got paid to do it full time. So I think off the top of my head, so there's like you know JavaScript with Babel. Technically, that was compiled to JavaScript. Elm, ReasonML, and now TypeScript. So how do you compare these? Like, what what did you sort of like, you know, like and dislike about each of them? Like, just thinking back well, over the years. First of all, I'm impressed that you remembered all that, and I'm going <laughs> to throw a couple more in. Okay, as well, please. Because I, <laughs> we also had PureScript in there, oh. and uh, that was right before Elm. And okay. I even gave Scala Scala JS a go as well. Oh wow! Because our backend was in Scala at the time. Okay, yeah, makes sense. That's probably the extent of the compile to JS languages. We can throw Kotlin in there as well, but Kotlin I haven't done JS with only only native Kotlin. But I've yeah, I probably have used more than my fair share of languages. I think my language budget has been has been spent. <laughs> have you ever done CoffeeScript? Because that's like I mean, yes, we could throw that. Yes, okay, also, there you go. Yeah, I have also done. <laughs> wow. And, uh, well, if we want to get into that, you know, there's also Jade for uh, HTML and Pug. Oh no, Pug came from Jade, and then and then SCSS and SAS, and there were some others. Like yep. I, for too many years, <laughs> I've been interested in and all like the other way of doing what everyone else is doing. So <laughs> yeah, this is like the smorgasbord of compiled to JS languages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think what I like my my outcome of it in the end of so many years of exploring is like it kind of doesn't really matter. That's kind of like <laughs> where I've come out. <laughs> it's like whatever helps you to get the job your job done in the way that you like is the thing you should probably use. Is like that's kind of where I've come out. Interesting. So so some people would take that to mean, which I don't think is what you're saying, but some people would take that to mean you should just do what everybody else is doing because it doesn't matter. But I think what you're saying is you should do what you're personally comfortable with. And it's like, it doesn't really matter that you're using quote unquote, the best thing. It's the thing that you're happiest with, even if that's not the most, the the thing that everybody else is doing. Do I have that right? Yeah. 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 I think that's right. But actually I think you could probably take both of those and run with them to success. You know, uh, if that makes sense. Because I think I've done both and they've both been good in their own ways, in their own different ways. Because after trying a bunch of niche languages and really enjoying the benefits that came with them, I also kind of realized that it was all different methods of getting to the same place. It kind of depended on what what I wanted the language to do for me, right? Like what what job am I employing the language to do? And sometimes what you're the job that you're employing the language to do is like to be mainstream and well-documented. So maybe you choose just JavaScript or sorry, JavaScript is not well-documented, but (laughs) (laughs) like the libraries, but maybe what, maybe what you're saying is like, I want a language that is low overhead as far as 
like shifting my mindset from what I'm used to. In which case, like, yeah, the JavaScript would probably be a, a great place to go and you accept the problems that come with that, right? But then on the other hand, like maybe a strong type system is like super important to you. So then you're going to shift your your decision-making paradigm. But I, I think that I, I came from a place of trying to find the nirvana, I suppose, of programming languages. Like I'm going to find the, the best way to do things. And I, I had stars in my eyes, especially over Haskell. I was like, all of this, all of the brilliant people use Haskell and it's the, it's like the blessed way <laughs> to write software uh-huh. until I was skipping way ahead in time. But I was talking to, to Evan, the creator of Elm one day. And, and he was like, okay, like let's, let's lay something down here. Haskell isn't necessarily the gospel truth. Like Haskell, Haskell doesn't necessarily like get it right. They just did something in a way. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, huge credit and thanks to Evan for shifting my mindset. Cause I, I had been feeling like there was this like place to get to where you were a competent programmer with wicked skills and using the, like the, the best language to do. Th- I don't, I don't think I would have put it in that language, but that was kind of what was happening inside my heart. And that was a shift for me. where I was like, oh, I choose the language that does the job I need it to. And that's all. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> They're crazy. Yeah. I that that really resonates with me. I definitely and, and there's some aspect of this, and tell me if this resonates with you too, but like if something is somewhat inscrutable, where it's like, I I have heard this thing is really cool, but I don't get it. I start to feel like I need to adapt myself to that. Like I need to, I need to get there. I need to get on that level somehow because I'm going to take it for granted that it's like the best, but like, and, and if it's not the best, well, I mean, how could I have possibly seen that? Because I'm, I'm over here, not even understanding the thing, but sometimes I, I've now that I've spent like more time with programming and not just Haskell, but like lots of different languages, I I've sort of noticed that in some cases I will, go from thinking of something as like totally inscrutable. And this has also happened with like low level stuff with like, I used to think that like there was just some like magic to like writing assembly or, or like, you know, really a low level C or like thinking about registers and stuff. And then I actually did some of that. And at some point I was like, Oh, it's not like morally superior. It's not like, you know, (laughs) it's not like the pinnacle. (laughs) It's just like, Oh, this is like, this is still programming. It's just like, there's different trade-offs compared to the stuff I was doing before. Like everything. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and I think an interesting thing about Haskell in particular, because I definitely also had a similar experience with Haskell where I was like, you know, I, I read a little bit of like learn you a Haskell and I was like, this seems really cool. I'm totally bought in. As it happens, I was doing front-end development at the time. So I was like, I decided that was how I wanted to focus my career was like building UIs. And so I wasn't like, I didn't have something to apply it to, but I was still like convinced that was like, that's the direction I want to go in. But yeah, and I think like, I think where Evan's coming from on that, and and I, I've certainly seen this now as like someone who's working on a language is just like every programming language is a set of hypotheses and then you do experiments and then you just find out how they turned out. You know, it's like you, you try to do something different than like what's been done before. Cause like, what's the point in making a programming language? that's like exactly the same as what's already out there. That's just like a huge amount of time to spend on something to get like the same results. So of course you're going to try stuff, but the whole point is that you're trying stuff that's never been done before. You're just going to find out how it turns out. That's the only way to find out is like you, you implement it and try it. And then 
often like the the feedback or like the turnaround time before you find out if it's like really good and like what all the dark corners of it is like decades it's not like oh i i shipped it and like obviously you can have good first impressions or bad first impressions but like oftentimes it's like the way that people think about something right when it's released is like pretty different than after there's like a whole ecosystem built around it and you see how like all of those decisions played out you know over a lot of different code bases and haskell's no different when they're focusing on when the people who are seeing your announcement are like focusing on the specific problem points that you've designed the language to address versus when it it strays to the other areas because when when something is new i find it very easy to assume that they've solved all the other problems along with the main problem they were trying to solve right and that was something that that i found to be maybe disappointing, <laughs> no, maybe not disappointing, maybe just like a call to reality, switching languages so much is it's like, oh yeah, every, every language has problem points and pain points. And I mean, that doesn't mean I'm like language amb- ambivalent. I definitely have my preferences, but I think that, you know, I, I've been in a place where I was like nose up in the air, looking down on people who chose to use PHP for their servers because I was felt morally superior, you know, at, <laughs> at that point. And uh, after experience, I'm like, great, you can use PHP, whatever, like whatever makes your server run that you can maintain, do that thing that you like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't care whether you used uh, like a, a, some weird library that some person wrote that hasn't been updated for 10 years. Like if it's working, that's, that's, and it's serving you. That's awesome. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I actually watched a talk recently that I thought was great by the creator of PHP, uh, Rasmus Lerdorf. It's called like 25 Years of PHP. And he's sort of reflecting on like how it all got started and like how things got to where they are today. And it was fascinating to hear about his early experiences with PHP and like what he was going for relative to how it ended up getting used. And that kind of like reinforces this idea of it's an experiment and then you find out what happens and it sometimes it takes decades. And one of the really fascinating things was that basically he was a C programmer and he showed a slide where he was like, this is what it looked like if you were a C programmer and you wanted to do like a web page. It's just a lot of string concatenation of raw HTML together. It's not very ergonomic. And then he's like, now you could use a scripting language for this. Like Perl was really popular at the time. And he shows the next slide and it's like, but it looks about the same. It's not very ergonomic. So what I wanted was to have a templating language kind of like mustache JS or like Jade or something like that, or pug. That was all he wanted was he was like, I want to write all my business logic in C like I'm used to. I just want to have a little templating language with very, very minimal amount of interaction, like very narrowly scoped. And I was a big believer in like, you should separate your presentation and your business logic. And he's like, and I know this is ironic because now PHP is famous for mushing them all together. But, (laughs) but originally my goal was to keep them separate. And what happened was, and again, you should watch the talk, but like, I'm going to summarize it. Uh, But like, basically he talks about how he put that out there and people started using it. They liked it, but they weren't C programmers and they didn't want to like do all their business logic in C. So what they would do is they would say, hey, how do I do this in PHP, like in, in the template? And he's like, yeah. well, you can add a function that does that. And well, maybe he should have said that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe in retrospect, he wishes he'd said, don't do that. That's, that's out of scope. But instead he was just like, oh, I'll help you solve your problem. Here's how you add a C function to do this. And then enough people kept asking, he's like, all right, I'll just put it in the standard library. So I don't have to keep explaining this to people how to like add their own thing. One thing led to another. And pretty soon it became clear that people just wanted to live in the templating language all day. And so he's like, all right, I guess I'll run with it. And then the language just evolved in that way. Now I would contrast this with 
Evan Chaplicki, who made Elm, he would have definitely said, no, no, that's not what this language is for. Like he, he's someone who, who has a very different language design philosophy from Rasmus in that he's like, this is what the language is designed for. And if people want to go in a different direction because they naturally feel like, well, I, I like these things about this language, but I want to use it in a different way. Evan's approach is to like try and explain how he wants the language to be used instead. Like he's like, well, this is what the language is designed for. And I think both of those philosophies are totally valid. Like it's, it just, it seems like Rasmus has some regrets as far as like how PHP ended up. But at the same time, also like, obviously a lot of people really liked that approach and like, you know, PHP was very, very successful. He mentions a couple of times in the talk, he's like, at every point in time, I thought surely PHP had no more than six months left to live before something better was going to come out and people are going to use it. So I didn't really mind tacking in all these like hacks and stuff and like all these little like, you know, weird idiosyncratic things because I was confident that like it wasn't going to matter. Pretty soon people were just going to make the better version of PHP and then I would be off the hook. But it kept getting used. <laughs> he created a, a creature that he he didn't intend. <laughs> it's become... So huge. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, that, that that was an accidentally grown thing, but that it's so useful. I think that about the English language too, like oh, sure. not really <laughs> intentionally structured. It's just grown into Far place. Yeah. <laughs> right. And but a ton of people there, use right? it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah beauty in that right. flexibility. It, absolutely. Yeah. And, and beauty even in the idiosyncrasies, right, uh, of the English language. Like a lot of the fun like wordplay that comes out of English is like stuff that only works and is fun because of all the like weird rules that make it a difficult language to learn. Unfortunately, that, that's a downside. But I'm also reminded of, you could say the same thing of Haskell, where something that PHP and JavaScript and Haskell have in common is that none of them are really used for what they were originally intended for. Like Haskell was originally specifically designed to be a research language for doing research on laziness. And now actually it's not even used for that. Like it's not like the research on laziness. It seems like they, they're kind of like, we're like, yeah, we, we got it. You know, we, I don't even know if it's used for anything actually. I mean, outside like research of research wise. No, I just mean outside of hipsters who, who like feel freaking <laughs> awesome about their own, their own side projects. I mean, I'm sure there are companies using Haskell in production, so don't add hey, me. Hey, hey, we, we are. <laughs> that was a nice a setup. Are you actually? Really? We are, yeah. We're wow. using, it's, oh, wait. it's not our whole backend, but we, yeah, we are for, for the last so couple of years. So you've mixed years, been, uh, Rails and Haskell? Uh, I wouldn't say mixed. I would say that we, we've been migrating from Rails to Haskell. Okay, has it been working out well? The Haskell part has, yeah. I mean, honestly, the biggest cool. challenge has actually been that it's difficult to incrementally migrate from Rails to not Rails in general, is what we found. So that's been a big challenge. But as far as like the actual, like once we get it up and running, the Haskell stuff we have has been very nice. There's definitely still some pain points with it. You know, that's like a whole tangent. But the way that we've been doing it is pretty unusual. We we The original like joke name was Elm flavored Haskell, which is basically okay. that we, <laughs> speaking of using things not the way they were intended, like we basically are like, let's pretend that Haskell is Elm to the point where we actually like ported like several parts of Elm standard library and like HTTP and stuff like that into Haskell so we can use like those APIs because I think they're nicer. <laughs> but anyway, yes, certainly it is the case that in the industry as a whole, there's a big gap between how many people think of Haskell as the pinnacle and how many people are actually using it. Yes, like right. there's a lot of people you can talk to and I can actually draw if, if you want to get in, into an even smaller niche this is something which it's hard for me to talk about this without sounding dismissive but like I'm going to try anyway <laughs> okay good luck even within the niche of people who like typed pure functional programming 
there's a lot of talk about how dependent types are obviously the future and obviously the pinnacle, way more so than there are people actually using dependent types. Now, I want to be clear that that doesn't mean that dependent types are a bad idea or anything. It just means that it's still in that hypothesis experiment stage. It's like, maybe they will turn out to be super awesome, but also maybe not. And certainly, like, they've been around for a couple decades and, like, I mean, more than that, if you count going back to the theorem provers, but like Idris, for example, like Idris has been out for a long time. And the point of Idris was, as I recall, like, let's bring dependent types to like application programming for practical stuff. I don't know a single person who has ever used Idris in production, like not even once. And and in fact, I don't even know anyone who's used Idris to like build a hobby project. I only know of people who have tried out Idris because like they read the book and they did some examples and they made like a demo like for a talk, maybe that's like the most advanced Idris program. I I personally know anyone who's like ever done other than obviously, like I don't know Edward Brady, but like, obviously he made Idris too in Idris. So obviously it's possible. But the point is that there's this big gap, right? Between like what people think about the language and like their mental model of like how great it hypothetically is and like what people actually do in practice, which is, I don't know, weird. <laughs> It's like an interesting psychological aspect of programmers, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think to some degree, there's a huge amount of grass is greener there going on because we tend to discount the benefits we have from our current tool in favor of the ideal world that the tool we can't use presents, right? Great point. So like right now, by the way, I didn't give any background, but if in, if anyone's listening and cares, I work at day one which was just acquired by Automatic, um, which Automatic runs WordPress, which is a bunch of the internet. So that's, that's my heritage. So I've been at Day One for like six years. And they brought me on to write a web client, which I started. And then I ended up taking over a lot more responsibility at the company. So we, it's six years later, we haven't released the, the web client. But we are... We are within months, I hope, of, of releasing the web client now, and we could talk more about that if you're interested. But, but I did lead the, I led the server team for a few years, and I inherited a server that was all, that was Scala, like Haskell style Scala, and that was that was kind of a bath of cold water for me because I was really excited about that. I was like, oh, Scala, you know, it would be better if it were Haskell, but we'll go with this. And it was like Scala Z, they were using the Scala Z libraries. And the more I actually used it and tried to debug what was happening, what was going wrong in the production system, the less satisfied I was with my, with my experience. I really enjoyed writing the first web client for day one in Elm. But as I was experimenting as well, I realized that purity in the pure functional language was much less important to me than I had initially thought it would be just through using it. So that's when we started experimenting with Rescript. And like one thing led to another, we end up, the front end team became the entire web team. And so the the original people who made the server, they left. And so we were like, well, let's unify everything. And let's just use reason. It was reason at the time. Let's use reason for everything. So we were writing the web client in reason. And then like, we were like, okay, let's rewrite the server in reason. And we did. I have a success story of doing a complete rewrite in production and it took like almost three years. It was, it was, I, I don't know if you'd call it a success story really because it was very expensive, but we did do it. We didn't cancel it. So I took the Scala server and I re, we rewrote everything in Rescript. Now that could have been pretty simple uh, relatively, but we also had to migrate our data store entirely because we were running on Couchbase at the time which was a decision they made 
at the height of NoSQL frenzy, NoSQL, like, what would you call that? I guess frenzy is a good name for it. Um, yeah, yeah. Like they started on Postgres as their backing store. And then they were like, we're going to be web scale. You know, we're, <laughs> we're not going to be able to stick all right. of our customer data in Postgres. So we're going to pay for Couchbase, which is a new fancy NoSQL store that promises to store everything you'd ever want and throw at it. They did that, which meant they had to take a totally different approach than you would with SQL for data modeling. And the problem is like, we weren't DB admins. And so there were some mistakes made that were too esoteric for me to recover from. Mm. Or rather, I, maybe I could have if I dug in more, but I had a lot going on. So my solution to the problems that we were facing was like, let's get rid of this technology, this couch base. It was so expensive to run. And I'm telling you, like, <laughs> we used it for scalability and fault tolerance. But one node would go down. Uh, like one node, if you wanted to restart one node, we're supposed to have a cluster where you can just like pop nodes in and out at will and that your data like reflows in between nodes. The concept is amazing. It never worked that way for us. Like one node would have one hiccup and the entire cluster would come down. And to re-bring it up took, we often couldn't. We often had to replicate all the data to an entirely new cluster. I had to stand up a whole new cluster. So there were multiple times when we were down for like two to eight to 24 hours while the data store was having problems. And it was just, oh, oh, it was so, it was so rough. So the Scala code was so, it was steeped enough in abstractions that I had a really, I had a difficult time following what was actually happening in the code, following the logical paths through. And then the data store was pretty difficult because they were, you know, you, you cap theorem on the database, you have, you have consistency, availability, and persistence, right? And you give up, you have, you pick any two of those three. And so the, the application code was like using this scalable store where data was eventually consistent, but also requiring it to be immediately consistent. And so we were trying the the application would just like freeze and go down when this eventually consistent data wasn't available. So <laughs> I'm going off on a huge tangent. I'm sorry, but it was a mess. Wow. Yeah. That's what spawned the rewrite. So I re we rewrite this thing and we, we rewrite it to run on Postgres back to Postgres off of Couchbase and put it into what I thought was going to be simple rescript from Scala. And I do think that I think Rescript is way simpler than Scala. And we could talk about that, the ups and downs of that in a second. But but like this rewrite, you know, I redesigned the sync system. So I re-architected, changed the language and changed the data store all at the same time. And <laughs> oh my gosh, it was a lot. And we shipped new features during that time as well. So it was a three-year, basically it was like a three-year swapping out the engine of the race car while racing. And right. I'm just amazed <laughs> that we made it through. But we did. We did it. We wow. The old server is gone. And now I'm like, was it worth it? Maybe not. I don't know. But we did it. <laughs> but definitely the data store swap was 100% worth it. We All of our data, but we've grown substantially since I first started this project like maybe double the data that we had. All of it is in one Postgres instance that has plenty of room to grow. And like th this is coming from a multi-node Couchbase cluster that was costing thousands of dollars a month down to like, I think each node we had was like eight to $1,200 a month or something. And we had like four of them or more. And this is now down to one box that's like 
pretty big running Postgres. And I'm just like, hats off to and big applause for Postgres for just being awesome. Yeah. All, all roads lead to Postgres, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But also like our data model isn't that complex either. Right. And so I think that I think that what we were probably seeing from Couchbase was a case of premature optimization where the engineers are like, we're going to need this big tool to handle all of our scaling needs when Postgres can scale super large as long as you have a big hard drive and simple queries. You know, the, that's you're pretty good there. And joins are easy. I got way off track. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like, there's, there's a lot of interesting like subtopics within there. So one of which is you mentioned like, you know, it's, it's not just about like the language you're using, but it's also the way in which you're using it. Cause like, there's probably like, I I'm guessing that another potentially viable option might've been let's stay in Scala, but let's rewrite it to be more straightforward and using the, a, a smaller tower of abstractions so that we can like, try and understand what the code is doing better. But I think and, and like an underrated concept here is like morale. Like let's say that nobody on the team is like excited about, like that's a, that's a big painful project to take like and rewrite your whole code base. Even if you're staying in the same language, like you're going to go from Scala with this whole totally different style and incrementally move it to Scala in a different style. How many people are going to stick around for that whole thing? Like how many people are just going to be like, this is not what I want to do with my day. I'm sorry. There's a lot of companies hiring. I'm just going to go somewhere else. Bye. Like, yes, that's a real risk that like a lot of people don't talk about. And if you're moving, if you need to make a big move and it's at least going to be towards something that people are excited about, that's a big difference. That's a big, very real business benefit. And like, it's easy to look at that and say, oh, if you just take human emotions out of the equation, then like, you know, that's, that's how you know you're about to hear a great idea. Then yeah, you could have just migrated from Scala to like boring Scala. And wouldn't that have been more successful? You know, it's, well, it's easy to say that, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, programming teams are made up of people and uh, people have emotions and, and feelings and other job opportunities. So like, you know, <laughs> you got to factor and also, that in. It's like you, you get people who grow too, right? Because when I started this project, I didn't have a good picture of my own experience or ability. Like that project of migrating stuff leveled me up so many times as an engineer. So that now, if I were to reapproach the problem now, I almost certainly would have done what you are suggesting. Because now I I would have had the confidence to say, I, I can figure out what's going on here. Like I've done enough now that I can see what's going on. But you know, I was like, I considered myself a server engineer because I could write code that would run on the server. So when I got hired, I was like, oh yeah, I can do server stuff. But I hadn't been a server engineer really. Yeah, I had never supported something in production. So once once that was my job, I was like, oh no, there's a lot to know here and it's hard. You know, it's not just you take the request object and do something with it and respond. It's like I find myself now later having migrated, being like, oh shoot, you know, well, okay, so it's actually kind of a pain that node is single threaded, you know, and like, maybe that matters during runtime, you know, and where like, as a front engineer, you're like, I can write server code. All you do is just write JavaScript and run it on node and you're good to go. You know, yeah. So now I'm like, well, the JVM is actually pretty, a lot of people have worked on it and um, there's a lot of languages that target it. So maybe, you know, if I hadn't spent three years rewriting to something that's based on JavaScript, there could have been an, a lot of benefits that, it, that would have come from staying, right? Cause I would have gotten Lots of people are working on the JVM. I could have upgraded to a new Java version and potentially gotten huge performance gains, you know, things like that. Even 
recently I, I really like Kotlin. I think Kotlin is a really cool language. I started writing Kotlin when I switched to the Android team at day one. And I was like, this, this language is awesome. And then I wrote a server in Kotlin because they also have server tools. And I was like, oh, this, this is so nice. You know, I wish, <laughs> I wish I had done this instead. And like, if I had stayed in Scala, then that door would have been a, a much easier door to go through. If I had said like, okay, maybe, maybe I, I now understand what's going on with Scala and I want to move to Kotlin. Maybe what I'm saying is like, one of the reasons to change a language is because you don't understand what is happening already. And you're like, I want to go to something where I can understand everything. And that's probably an indication that you shouldn't do that, right? Like, <laughs> unless you really, unless you really know what you already have, maybe you shouldn't make the decision to do something different. The biggest problem is you don't understand what you've got. And like maybe before deciding what solution to apply to that, you should spend more time under actually understanding what you've got. Yes, right. Because it's one thing if you're saying like, we've been working with technology X for years and we've been feeling the pain points. We know what they are and they're costing us X number of dollars or X number of sanity points or something, right? <laughs> and then to look at a new thing that comes out and examine it and say, okay, I understand what my pain points are, my downsides, and I'm going to go to this new thing because I also see its downsides and upsides. That said, I almost switched us in the middle of our rewrite from rewriting to Rescript to rewriting to Elixir because I loved a lot of the things about Elixir and Phoenix. And we had conversations at length about whether we should do this. And you know, we laid out the pros and cons. We we had already been running stuff with the rewrite and nodes. So we knew how that was working. There were a bunch of reasons to do the move, except like budget and time. And we basically decided to do it and then didn't do it. And then we're really glad that we didn't do it because we were like, yeah, empirically, we should move to Elixir from Node, probably. And then practically, we were really glad we stayed with Node because it was good enough. Because I, I was like, well, I, you know, I don't think we were wrong about Node's downsides, but they ended up being less painful than we were scared that they would be, you know? And I think that's funny too, because we, I mean, I, we almost spent a huge amount of money throwing away our node work and then we didn't. And I'm like, oh, and you know, node isn't the best thing in the world, but it's running our entire infrastructure and continues to do it, you know, and it's standing up to the workload. So, wow. Yeah. I think another interesting thing that you brought up earlier that I want to get back to is, um, like, a for lack of a better term, like the ecosystem. And I, I, when I say ecosystem, I think a lot of the times the conversation around the ecosystem of a particular language gets oversimplified down to number of packages. But I think there's a lot more to it than that that really matters. First of all, I think number of packages as a thing that matters has very diminishing returns. Like there's a certain number of like packages that you don't want to be doing from scratch. But like if it's got those... Like, I don't necessarily care that much if I need to get something off the shelf for like, for example, like our error recording service, like Bugsnag or something like that, or Rollbar or whatever you're using. Like, because if that's not available off the shelf, how long is it going to take you to write a library that just makes some HTTP requests against their API? Not that long. That's like something we do all the time with our own servers. So like, it's just not, that's not a big you know, time sync. There's other stuff that's a huge time sync. And I really want those libraries to be there. 
Like if you're lacking an encryption library or something, right? Like sure. That's gonna yeah. Be right. I don't want to roll my own crypto. No, thank you. And so when I hear it's like, oh, like NPM has like, you know, a million plus packages. It's like, okay, I'm not going to use a million packages in my project. I'm just not. That's a million like, packages that don't matter to me. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, it's like, do I even care? Like if, if NPM had 50,000, like that's still like way more than I'm going to use in my project. So it's really just like, are the ones that I want there and the ones that I would use, if they're not there, are those big things for me to do myself or really small things? So that's one piece. But another piece that I think is also underrated is the non-library part of the ecosystem, like the tooling, like around, you know, what's it like to deploy this? What's it like? Like, do I get help with like generating things? I think like I recently rewatched the original pitch for like Ruby on Rails, like the the talk about how to build a blog engine in like 15 minutes. And like all the time, what he's doing is like running basically like scripts that come with Rails to like generate stuff for himself. Like that stuff saves a bunch of time when you're like in the early stage and trying to like prototype stuff. He didn't demo it, but like, or maybe he did. But like after you get up and running, like the like Rails console that lets you just like write code in terms of your actual code base and like do stuff with your database, really useful. Like there's a lot of, I, I think it's sort of easy to pick on Rails because there's also a lot of like horror stories that people have about like getting a big Rails code base and now it's like unmaintainable and your only options are like rewrite or like rewrite and something else. But there is a lot to be said for like the tooling around that. And like, you can just very easily see like, hey, what are all my routes? And like, what's the code that's associated with them? You can just like, that's just the thing. You press, you know, one button and, and you got it. Yes. So going back to like Idris and Haskell, those languages have a lot of selling points from a language perspective, but what's the ecosystem? And again, I don't just mean what's the number of packages in the ecosystem. What I mean is like, if I'm building a web service in Haskell and I want to see all of my routes, can I do that? If I want to generate like a new thing that's just like got some basic CRUD operations, you know, how hard is that? How much time does that take? And I'm not saying that any of those is like, oh, that's the most important thing, but I am saying it's a thing. Like it's a consideration and oftentimes like it's, it's easy to elevate like one or two of these considerations over all the others. Like I certainly know plenty of people who say like the language is the most important thing. I don't really care if the ecosystem's not there. Cause I'm just going to be like building everything from scratch. Anyway, I have such a weird bespoke use case that like I, off the shelf stuff is not going to be that helpful to me. But I also know some people who are the exact opposite where they're just like, all I care about, like I'm a consultancy and all I care about is how quickly can I pull stuff off the shelf to get this thing shipped for my client as soon as possible. And that's, that's the number one thing. All of these considerations are real. It's just a question of like, for your particular project, which ones are like, how, how relatively important are they? Yeah. So we come back to the, to the, like, what's your language doing for you? Have you heard a uh, Clayton Christensen book, The Innovator's Dilemma? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. I don't know if it was in that book or in another, but he he has this concept where he talks about a milkshake that you don't just buy a milkshake because it's tasty, but when you go to buy a milkshake, it's because you're hiring it to do a job for you. And like maybe that job <laughs> is to relieve stress because you enjoy its taste. Maybe that job is to fill you up while you're in the car on the way to work. And like a burger wouldn't wouldn't do that because you can't eat a burger and drive, you know. So he's saying like when you have a product, what are people hiring your product to do? And this is, I think this is also the case with programming languages, because like, even though we don't pay for programming languages, mostly since they're open source and open use, like what, what are you hiring your language to do for you? What jobs are, is it going to do? And so, for example, I put a lot of emphasis on a type system. So we chose Rescript, right? That, that was something where I was like, I'm going to hire Rescript to do my 
to do a type system for me. But I didn't research well at the time was I was like, well, okay, rescript slash reason has wrappings for express. It's simple because it's all node. So we'll just put it on node and it'll be fine. But once I got into it, I was like, oh, the reason integration with express is very awkward. It's not ergonomic because express is designed for node where you don't have types. And so it's designed for this really flexible use case. So once I tried to start using express, it was not a good experience. So I made my own framework and then I changed it and I wrote in it and then I changed it and I wrote it and I must have like completely redone the framework like four times as I was writing the server. So at some, at some point it was like, okay, I've restructured the API for this server framework now and I have to go update over a hundred endpoints to match it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> so like, is that something that I could have saved a whole lot of time and money on? Yeah. By going, by just picking a tool that already had a good framework with tooling around it. Right. And that's part of why with the Kotlin thing, I'm like, oh, well now Kotlin has like a pretty solid framework with a good type system and some okay tooling. So like, that's a, that's a pretty solid choice. But for example, something like Elixir and Phoenix, the tooling is really great. The documentation is pretty good. The community is active and strong. The story they have around building a web app is very is well thought out and compelling. It's a solid choice. And especially performance-wise too, because they built on a technology that was made for performance from the start and has has been solid. But you give up the types. So you you can't hire Elixir to help you write type safe code, right? You have to rely on it. You have to code in a different way. And that that's a way that's much harder for me to operate because I've relied on types for so many years. So yeah, back to like what is the what's the job you're hiring it to do? And node, single threaded node has turned out to be like acceptable for us. So the types have been great. And developing like I've been able to do mind-boggling refactors on our code base. Major changes that took multiple days to even get the compiler running again. But I did because the type system was really good and the compiler was really fast in Rescript. And that's cool. You know, that's a really cool thing. And maybe you couldn't do that with, with Rails or, or Phoenix, you know, to do that level of refactoring. I'm not sure that you could do it. Well, but, I mean, based on our experience with Rails, yeah, it's, it's just way harder. Like if you, if you want to, like I said, I mean, the, the big challenge has been like moving from Rails to not Rails. And of course, you know, we're also shipping new features all the time. It's not like we can just stop and be like, oh, let's rewrite our, you know, several hundred thousand lines of Rails code and, and yeah, just like, that. you know, no problem, right? <laughs> yeah. We'll just stop shipping for that whole period. It's not going to work. But yeah, I mean, w- without having a type checker, like, and I'm not saying type checker is a panacea that solves everything, but like, it would be a pretty big help in this case, to the point where we've actually been investing in like Sorbet, like the add-on type system, even though we want to move away from Rails, like, it's been helpful just to like deal with the Rails code we've already got to like add, you know, type checks to it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, it's one of those factors. It's not like we can just look at Rails or Elixir or anything and just say, oh, well, the tooling's really good, but like, well, it doesn't have a type system, but I don't care. You know, I mean, that's also a factor. <laughs> so then you get into decision fatigue, right? Because there are so many tools and what do you do with them? And like, I think that, for as far as side projects go, let's go into side projects now. I've been wanting to build mobile apps for a long time. And so I did, I investigated, oh, years ago, Titanium for for creating apps cross-platform with JavaScript. Okay. I've, I've heard of it, but I have never used it. Oh, uh, it's, it was one of the original toolkits to try to build mobile apps with JavaScript. And then from there, there was like Ruby Motion, And then there's... Uh, uh, 
I'm going way too far back. Point is, I spent a bunch of time trying to figure out how to like use my one favorite language. Can I use Elm or can I use, oh, can I use Rescript to write a mobile app? You know, things like that, because I wanted to like use the best tool. So here I am now working on my side project after exploring React Native and after exploring Cordova. And I ended up in a place where I was like, I think that, I think that the lowest resistance for me to get this, my projects done is to actually just use the, the toolkits that are designed for that purpose that exist. So like I, I'm, I do Swift for my iOS app at night, and then I switch to TypeScript during the day for the web app project that I'm working on at, at work. And then my, my, the server tool I wrote is in Kotlin. And then like when I was doing the Android code base, that was in Kotlin. So I, like, I've kind of cultivated the skill of being able to hold multiple languages in my head at once. I still get brain boggled. But that's another thing too, is like, maybe you just use a lot of different things for their jobs. You know, whatever the job is to be done, use the thing that is best suited for it, right? Yeah, nothing wrong with that. (laughs) I mean, it can be tiring mentally, but I think that's back to our our previous topic we keep harping on, which is like, uh, the the ecosystem matters. And and maybe, maybe what I'm doing there is lowering my tolerance for doing meta work, right? Because when you're trying to adapt a language that wasn't natively made for a purpose by the people who, like, if you're trying to write an Apple app in in Java or something, right, there's going to be a bunch of meta work around that. Uh, I should have just used a real example. If you're trying to write React Native and you're writing a, a mobile app with TypeScript, you're pretty regularly running into bugs in the translation layer that are like, oh, I have to write a native library for this. I have to go learn C anyway. I have to figure out why I'm getting this super weird error. And like, I go post it, I go check out the, the GitHub issues for this library that I'm using. And like, it's not maintained anymore. And like, there's no flipping way to generate a UUID in React Native because nobody's figured like 10 people have done it and none of them are maintained and none of them are working, you know? So like, (laughs) there's a bunch of meta work behind the ideal of like, Hey, I can write great apps in my web language. So eventually I got burned out on that. And I was just like, I'm just going to learn the native language and, and be flexible myself. Sorry. That was so rambly. I just went on. <laughs> all good. Anything you want to go with from there? <laughs> well, yeah. So, so one thing that comes to mind is that I think a, a theme of what you're talking about is that the more layers you have, the more potential problems you have. So like you gave the example of like Rescript talking to express which itself is a library built on top of Node, which itself is like a JavaScript runtime written in C. Like there's yes. all these different layers so where like layers. things can go wrong, right? And like Node, like the JS, you know, to C part, like that's pretty battle tested. I, I wouldn't worry about getting any problems in there. But like you said, you can have a mismatch in there between like Express and Rescript. Like that's just, you know, a potential thing that could happen. But also, I mean, let's be honest, even if you weren't doing Express, like when you did your own framework, I'm guessing there were also some parts where if this were like, you know, the native OCaml runtime, you probably would not have as like some some of the weird mismatch problems I'm guessing came up when you're like talking, you know, compiling to JavaScript and working directly in JavaScript from a language that was originally designed, namely OCaml, to have its own like native runtime. Oh, yeah. We didn't even mention that because there's that's actually a difference too because the OCaml way is not the reason or Rescript way. Oh, really? You got like Rescript to difference from OCaml, difference from JS, 
different. Yeah, there's another layer in there too. Yeah. So this is actually a, a theme of like what we've been trying to do with rock is trying to like strip away layers and trying to make it so that there's just like one layer <laughs> and that's it. So it's a low level language. Is that how you would express that? Like, no, it's definitely a high level language. Not a Rust competitor, but but it is, well, in terms of performance, we're trying to sort of like asymptotically approach Rust. Um, we're not going to like quite get there because there's always going to be some like reference counting, like automatic memory management that uh, in Rust, you would you would have the borrow checker instead and it would do that in a more, uh, less, less runtimey, more compile timey kind of a way. But fundamentally, like a, a thing that's like pretty accurate is that we have this concept of platforms and applications and the way it's supposed to feel is that you as an application author, you pick a quote unquote platform to build on. And these are approximately the same abstraction level as like a framework. So it's like you're picking a framework. So it doesn't feel that different from most application development because in practice, you usually pick a framework. The difference is a rock platform is basically two pieces. One is it's got the pure rock API, which is what the application authors talk to. And then it has low level stuff that implements like the under the hood stuff like the the actual like effects basically. And those are all written in like a Rust or C or Zig or something like that. We've got examples in the repo of like how to do it with all those. So the interesting thing about this is that the way that it works under the hood is that effectively your entire rock application basically compiles down to a C library. That's I'm oversimplifying only a little bit. <laughs> and then basically the, the platform author is like, okay, I know this application is going to compile down to this C library and I know what the, like, the shape of its exposed functions are going to be. So I'm just going to call some of them. So maybe the C library exposes a function that's named main or something like that. I'm like, okay, that's the entry point. I want to call that. And that's where the application is going to start running. But actually the, the platform itself is like, has the real main that like the operating system sees. But the point is that there's just that one layer. It's not like a VM on top of a different languages VM on top of a, you know, it's just like, well, there's the the thing that talks to the operating system. And then your application compiles down to something that that thing can use as a library. And that's it. So help me understand how this is distinct from like the JVM and a jar file. Sure. So JVM, you've got the JVM itself, I assume is written in, I mean, it has to be a low level language. It's not Java. It's, it's, probably C or C++, I'm guessing C++. So JVM is a bytecode interpreter. So you give it, like you you take your .java file, you compile that into a jar. A jar, as I recall, it's been a few years, um, is like a zip file containing uh, Java bytecode. And the JVM will take that bytecode and read through it and interpret it at runtime along with a JIT and, and do stuff like, okay, I see this instruction that says like, load this class. I'm going to translate that into like creating this data structure in memory. I see this instruction that says do an add. Okay, I'm going to translate that at runtime into this machine instruction and then run that. Whereas what we're doing is a lot closer to what C is doing. Like when you compile your rock application, it's just down to all the way down to machine code, straight up. It's just like, like literally you could actually take in fact, if you want to, you're, you don't, you could just not have a platform and just say, like, I'm literally compiling a C library. Here you go. And you could just write a C program that imports that compiled rock application directly and just calls the stuff. You could totally do that if you wanted to. Okay. Okay. So the sort of like one layer is really just how do you have like C or, or some language that speaks C like Rust or, or it doesn't have to be a low level language. You could also do this. Somebody made a proof of concept of running a rock application in Swift where they just used Swift C bindings to be like, Oh, cool. Take this compiled thing and, you know, call it. But we're really just trying to boil everything down to one layer where base. And really the only reason we have that one layer is so that 
there can be a different set of people working on the low level stuff and the higher level stuff. Cause the idea is like much like with a framework, like I know that there's some like inside like rails, for example, there's some low level stuff in there. There's like some C extensions and stuff like that, but I don't know. I don't care. I, I I've never had to get involved in any of that because there's this, there's this boundary where it's like, here's the public API of rails. That's what I use. I write Ruby code against that and that's it. And so the point of creating that one layer is just to have that separation so that as an application author, you don't need to know another language. You can just know rock and just write that. But from a technical level, we can reduce a lot of these and eliminate a lot of these mismatches by smashing down the number of layers all the way down to just like, well, somebody is talking straight to the operating system and, uh, and then everybody else is just talking to like a, you know, a language specific wrapper around that. And somebody was, uh, in the, the rock Zulip chat was asking about, I'm um, in the beginners channel about like, Hey, I'm like working on this platform. Should I be worried about like calling into the application multiple times and like calling these things? Like, is that going to be a big performance overhead? Cause it's like, I'm like going in and out of this stuff. It's like, not at all. It's it's this, literally the same performance as a C function call. It doesn't get any cheaper than that, uh, other than like an inline C function call. So are you talking about like is this? I think I'm not quite capturing the vision. So are you saying like there's the standard library? Basically, are you talking about like the interaction between the the code that would be produced and the standard library? Not even. Uh, so so this is like let me give you an example. So let's say that I want to make a command line app in Rock. And like, I, I want to, you know, it's just like, I might use Python for this, or I might use Rust or, or uh, Go or anything like that, but I've decided I'm going to use Rock. That command line app is my application that I want to build. Before I can do that, I have to pick some platform to build on. So this platform might be called like Rock CLI platform for making sweet CLIs, but probably a shorter name than that. You know, somebody, somebody else wrote that, right? This is like my framework that I'm building on. So I go find this framework and I say, okay, cool. This is the, my platform. And like, that's actually a first class language concept. So like, I have to say in my application, like, here's the platform I'm using. And you, you have exactly one platform you're building on. Just like there's usually exactly one framework you're building on. It'd be pretty weird if you had more than one framework. And so then I go to its documentation. It's just like, okay, here's how you set up one of these apps. It's like, here's how you provide main to me. And here's like my operations for like reading environment variables and command line arg parsing and, you know, file IO and all that good stuff. And I just use that and I build my CLI app and I just say like, you know, rock build and it's like, cool. And it spits out an executable and it's just a binary executable. It's not like a jar file or anything. It's just like a compiled, you know, binary that you can just run on your operating system. Yeah. It's like you're writing an extension basically, right? Under the hood. That's right. Yeah. But to me, it's like somebody who's building this thing. It, it feels more like I'm just writing a normal application. It's like I'm, I'm building an application with the weird requirement that I have to pick a framework. I think I get a distinction here is that like maybe with an extension, you would be adding functionality to somebody else's application where this is saying like right. maybe it's similar in experience to writing an extension but what you get out is your own application yeah right and and so importantly the language is designed to be good at both so another thing that it's designed to be really good at is literally making extensions or like plugins for things so let's say for example i want to write a uh, postgres extension like a database extension in rock well all i have to do is set up that one little glue layer where it's like, I, I, I write some C code that says like, okay, I'm going to talk to Postgres's, you know, whatever their extension API looks like. I'm going to expose some versions of those like C functions in Rock. And now I've got a platform for building Postgres extensions. And anyone can just write a quote unquote application, which is a Postgres extension. And just compiling those two together, you end up with 
again, some machine code on disk that you can just give to Postgres and it'll just be like, oh, cool. I know, I know what to do with this. All right, here we go. It's a C library. So how is why would I, why would I do this in rock and not C++? Just, I'm trying to get the, I'm trying give me the, trying to get the concept. Automatic memory management. <laughs> and it's a pure okay. functional language and stuff like that. I'm still using rock for like, for its semantic, for the language features and not so much for this, for the platform architecture that you're talking about. But you're saying that part of the goal is to not have a bunch of layers that are produced out of all of the niceties. Right. That- so it's like you can get the ergonomics of a high level language that feels like it's like, okay, automatic memory management. It's got like first class functions. It's a nice, simple syntax. It's like, it feels nice to use, but under the hood, what it's compiling down to looks to the machine a lot more like it was made by a C++ or something like that. Um, and along the way, eliminating all those intermediate layers that you might have in the like rescript to Node.js, you know, yada, yada, there's like categories of problems that in theory will not happen. I mean, this language is like too early to, to say that conclusively, but that's the goal. Well, actually, I think that's an interesting place to loop the community back in, because when you say like, in theory, that won't happen, I think a lot of that is solved by an active community, which is like, you know, earlier we're talking about what do you pick? Like if you're picking a technology for your startup or something, you're considering language ergonomics, but also maybe you're considering like the fact that there's a multi-billion dollar company somewhere contributing to the speed of your platform if you pick Java or if you pick PHP. I'm, I'm not sure if PHP yeah, is sure. optimized, but yeah, right. Like, can you, can you piggyback on the community, meaning someone else with a lot of dollars that really cares about this, that's offering free help. Right. And so if, if enough people sign on to the ergonomics of rock and are excited about it, then you get people saying, okay, let's make the server experience fantastic and optimize the uh, response times and stuff. Yeah. And write all the tooling and all that stuff. Like you mentioned, like there's, there's two aspects to community. One aspect is like the, the individuals involved, but another aspect is like the funding involved for lack of a better term. One of the cool things about specifically about performance optimization is that there's a lot of work that's gone into the systems level languages that ultimately like rock platforms are are built on top of. So we actually already had someone, maybe this is a bit of a spoiler for a future talk, but I guess I can give it with a caveat of like, we need to do a lot more research on this. But somebody did a basic proof of concept of doing, like making a rock platform that's built on top of like Rust's async stuff and basically like seamlessly using that under the hood. And so from an API perspective, it looks like, oh, this is just like a server framework, like an express type of thing. But then he benchmarked it against like actual like raw Rust like requests per second. Like if you just use, wrote the whole thing in Rust and it was like, I don't want to give specific numbers, but it was like close (laughs) because yeah, because like the rock code is like compiling down to machine code. That's like not quite as efficient as Rust, but like very close. And if it's literally all Rust under the hood and the behind the scenes stuff you can't see, then like that's a huge benefit. And, and bringing it back to what you said about community and investment, that's not because somebody spent a ton of time. In fact, this was like a weekend project that he did this in. Like it was, it was because there's been a huge amount of money and effort and time and community involvement in the Rust ecosystem. And we're just kind of like able to leverage that, you know, because of the way things are architected that we can like have this low level thing, <laughs> this part of the platform. Which is also why I was able to do a, an entire production server in Rescript is because it just runs Node, right? And and people have spent huge amounts of money making sure that Node runs well in production. 
Yeah. Not as much as JVM though, which I think is kind of interesting. Like for all the the money that's gone into optimizing JavaScript and like JavaScript engines, Node specifically has like a lot less of, of like a specific investment, which is kind of interesting. And I think that probably just has to do with the fact that I don't think, as far as I know, it's not used by like tech giants that much. I think maybe LinkedIn's backend is a node if I remember right. But I think- I looked at it and like, I think that this also speaks to- the maturity thing maybe I was talking about before, but I was like, Node, of course, of course, Node is great because all of the front end developers use it for the back end. You know, like it's like it's got server APIs built in, right? So, and then I, you see, you go and you see like the Walmart logo on there and you're like, oh, this is totally solid. But then later when I'm doing research after we've already been working on moving to Node, I'm like, oh, they only use it for like a cache a caching layer between the real <laughs> yeah. server. And I'm like, oh, I wish I had pushed more into this because it's doing fine for us. But I think it, I think that we could be probably benefiting from like the JVM if we had stayed, if we had stayed there in ways that we're not getting benefits right now. And that's because I didn't know really how to vet it. I didn't really know how to look into it. But it would be a lot worse if people hadn't also been using Node. I think that probably... There's more research to be done, but which I'm not going to do. <laughs> but I, I, I guess that the the more usage of Node as a server is are smaller groups that are just front end engineers that are like, I need to make a server thing, and then they do it. I think you're probably right about that. Wow, we talked about a lot. We covered a lot of ground. <laughs> a lot of really interesting topics. Hopefully, anything at all useful was said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I, I think a lot of people benefit from hearing your perspective because a lot of people will maybe tr- do you know, try an unusual technology once, but like having, like hearing about your experiences, like doing it a bunch of times and then like kind of where you ended up thinking about all these things. Fascinating to hear. So thank you so much for joining me. This is, this is a great conversation. Thanks. You're so welcome. Anytime. I'm glad to, glad to come and chat. Thanks, Richard. Awesome.